Museum of the Moving Image welcomes you to the Pinewood Dialogues Online, an archive of conversations with innovative creative figures in film, television, and digital media. Visit Museum of the Moving Image in New York City or online at www.movingimage.us. Please welcome Ava DuVernay. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks. Hi, folks. Thanks for coming out on a snowy Tuesday night. It was snowing this morning. I'm from California. So yeah, sorry. Like, sorry. Snowing. We've had worse weather recently, <laughs> yeah, so know, this I is know. okay. This is pretty I mild. Know. Yes, true, uh, true. But congratulations. This is a, a big day for you. I mean, yesterday was big enough, but today you got four different nominations for the Spirit Awards. Yeah, yeah. We were really happy with yeah. that. Yeah, it's lovely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and others could have been given. I think Bradford Young is such an amazing cinematographer. Yeah. It's yeah, a great-looking film. They missed him. So but he'll yeah, get his due. He he'll will. <laughs> he will get his due, absolutely. Um, so could you talk a bit about your background and how you have an interesting um, career leading up to your filmmaking career, and you seem to have such a strong idea about what you want to do as a, a director and mm-hmm. writer. Mm-hmm. So could you give us a little bit of the backstory and how you got into directing? Yeah, yeah. I was a film worker. Um, I worked as crew. Uh, so when people think they're cast and crew, that was me, crew. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I was a publicist for for other filmmakers and really helped um, other directors put their you know films in front of people for about uh, 12 years. I owned an agency called the DuVernay Agency in Los Angeles, and we handled film and television projects. My specialty were films um, that were considered hybrid by the studios. So hmm. some, my first film was uh, Scary Movie. Um, because it was a black director, but there were some white people in it, but the jokes were not like black jokes, but like, we don't know what it is. Give it to that young woman that just opened her agency. I was 27 years old. Second film I did was Spy Kids. So it's Robert (laughs) Rodriguez, but the little girl looks white, but they're not doing Mexican stuff. Like, we don't know what it is. Just, you know, give it to her. (laughs) So I started doing that kind of thing and eventually did Dreamgirls and Invictus and Collateral and a lot of cool things, a lot of cool TV stuff. And uh, just from proximity to filmmakers, I caught the bug. Now, we're showing this film in a series that's called Changing the Picture, which is about filmmakers of color. Um, And I'm wondering if you had an idea as you were observing the film industry and looking at movies, you know, if you had an like, idea about something different you wanted to do, you seem to have a real like, vision of what you want to be bringing to the screen. Yeah, no, I think it's a great series, and I commend you for it. This place is gorgeous. It's my first time here. Um, kudos. I mean, really <laughs> awesome. Um, I, um, yeah, I just, I worked with a lot of really wonderful black filmmakers, Gina and Reggie Bythewood. Um, would be top of my list of folks that I just worked with that you know became friends with and was really nourished by um, you know but overall I, I like independent films American independent cinema European cinema and weren't seeing films with that kind of sensibility um, you know prominently they're being made but they're hard to find or they're from 20 years ago or whatever um, there wasn't a it didn't seem to be an industry around or a market being cultivated around black independent cinema of an art house quality for lack of better terms to 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 talk about but you know mm-hmm. what i mean like you know it's it's not kind of mass and 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 mass is awesome i love mass but you know these are these are smaller stories um i wasn't seeing that balance you know there was a time in the in the 90s and even in the early 2000s where we were seeing you know nice consistent output from the studios of a certain kind of black picture but even that's fallen off 
So there's really nothing there now. There's really nothing in the space uh, to fill up 12 months. Yeah. I mean, if I just saw, like my mother, for example, I only like to see black movies. Okay, so you're going to see, what, three movies a year? Because you're going to have to break out of that. You can't just see black movies because you're not going to see movies, right? And, um, <laughs> and so ultimately, when you do tally up what the, what the studios are putting out, and she lives in Montgomery, Alabama, so she can't go see an indie. She mm-hmm. has to wait for the black films that come to her theater. And this year, she had Jumping the Broom, Think Like a Man, hmm. and like Alex Cross. And I was like, Mom, technically not a black film. <laughs> you know? And she was like, I'll take it. I'll just, you know, I'll just do it. So, you know, that's a real challenge for a whole community of, you know, people who love art, who love to see themselves, who yeah. should see themselves. And uh, so that's really my idea about it is to create balance and consistency in the images that we're providing. And how did you fix on this particular idea? Because usually if we, if, we think, if we hear that there's prison involved, we think of violence and good guys and bad guys and, and like heavy melodrama. Yeah. This is a different take on that subject. But how did you come to this? Yeah, I like the idea of, of, of playing with, uh, with what has so often been caricature. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, I think, look, playing with the idea of a black woman in the lead is playing with the idea of caricature because, you know, this, this sister is different from what we're getting. Yeah. Um, the sister in the first film, I Will Follow, is different from what we're getting. I think if you're, you know, working in black, independ- in black cinema at all, especially in independent cinema, you're, you're deconstructing caricature. Um, and so we just took it to the nth degree because we're throwing out prison. We got affairs going on. We got all of those things that you would think I know what this is. Mm-hmm. Baby mamas, all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> but doing it in a way where you think you know what that is, but in, in, unless you've walked in those shoes, you, you don't really know. And so that's what we're trying to, to play with. And tell us a bit, well, I have to ask about the casting. Yeah. I mean, because uh, so much of what you're doing here is... Um, just creating a space where we can really watch the characters. And it's not just your lead, but the other actors, too, who are, who are great. But you really like, create a certain kind of pace and space and way of really looking at these people. Um, ha- so for, I guess I'll start by asking just the, the casting of Emmy Yatsi Cornel- yeah. Cornelde, who's now going to become a big name, but I think... Um, <laughs> She's already a big name. Yeah, right, right, right. Big name. Right. She's about to be a real big name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, to see her really over the last two days, uh, something really changed in hmm. just, I mean, literally, I just put her on a plane. Um, you know, she, I mean, to be in that room last night, Gotham's, with really like, you know, New York white indie hipster vibe right and for her to win you know completely against all odds was not favorited was no one was even checking for her right yeah um and to win and to for her to get up there and to be warmly received and then this morning she you know she has her sag foundations uh, conversation and she says uh, in last night's speech she says last year i was sitting on my couch eating frosted flakes and then in her, in her sad conversation this morning, she was like, I always go to these sad conversations. I always sit right there. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and then, you know, at one o'clock, we, uh, we get the, the announcement that she's nominated for Best Actress Spirits. And we were there last year, like in the back of the tent, like just the, yeah. you know, just way in the back with some freebie tickets that we had gotten. And um, to see it all change for her as a working actor who's been struggling for like the last decade, you know, against all this rejection and... Um, to actually be like in the last two days, people knowing how to say her name correctly. Right. Um, it's been really wonderful for me because we, we met her in the audition process. 
um, the the role was, you know, I, I won't overstate it to say somewhat highly coveted only because it was a black woman in the lead and she wasn't a prostitute. You know what I mean? Like she wasn't like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like she wasn't being abused and she wasn't being mistreated and she was, I mean, she was just a full character. And so literally and beautifully we had our, our pick of a number of actresses that you know by name. Um, and in some way, that was kind of sad, you know, just because they, you know, it was folks that might not have been right for the part, but just not having the opportunity to play a full arc as a lead. Um, so anyway, uh, she came in to audition for Ro uh, Rosie, the sister. And it was our casting director, Aisha Coley, who said um, she might be a Ruby. We should hmm. take a look at her. And we had been looking at folks who were outside of kind of the known spectrum. And uh, she just blew, blew, blew me away, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I really, I, I remember in that moment having a conversation with our producer, Howard Barris, my producing partner. And he said, you know, as producers will, who knows her? Like, how's she going to help the poster? <laughs> I said, I'm a marketer and I make posters. Cause 12 years of publicity. Like, no one can really tell me how to market a black movie because it's <laughs> shut down. Because I said, I've done 112. How, how many have you done? <laughs> and, um, and so I knew that. But then also there was a distinct conversation with him. And I referenced Spike. And I referenced Warrington Huntland, my brother and mentor over here. I'm so happy you're here. Um, the great Warrington Huntland, everyone. A round of applause. <laughs> um, to say that, you know, there was a time when filmmakers, black filmmakers, took risks on our talent. And it wasn't even seen as risk. It, it was working with the right people. And we've come into this space where independent film is just like mainstream film with attachments and names. And it's just like, she's the best person for it. It's her part. She's Ruby. We've got to do this. And so, um, so yeah, we cast her out of the blue. And now she's the best actress and all that stuff. Uh, David Oyelowo, I met on a um, one of our investors met on a plane. Um, sitting next to David Oyelowo, he was on his way to do looping for Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Um, the investor sitting next to him and says, uh, "You're an actor. I was thinking of investing in this film. What do you think?" And he's like, "Well, you know, what is it?" He's like, "It's yeah. a black film." David's like, "Oh my God, a black film! What is it called? Who who directed?" He said, "Oh, this woman Ava DuVernay." He's like, "Oh my gosh, I just saw her on CNN. She has a distribution company. She did this film. Send me the script." Hmm. I said, David, do you, later I asked him, do you just take scripts from strangers in general? But <laughs> get sent the script, and the next day he called, and he asked if he could be in it. Um, and then Omari Hardwick, who plays the, the uh, husband I'd worked with before in my first film. So they all came from different places. Yeah, there's such nuance in the performance. Like, um, you know, there's like the, your, your lead has a combination of, of um, she's, she's strong and vulnerable at the same time. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about your approach to what you're doing as a, a director. Because um, it's hard to think of other films of, of any type, not just within the category of like independent films or films by black women director, but it's hard to think of dramatic films that are just so um, sort of sure-footed in, in, in just looking at their characters and letting the characters have nuance. Oh, thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. That means a lot. Yeah. <clears throat> I just don't like things to be on the nose. I don't appreciate yeah. being told how to feel in films, and I don't like being right. manipulated. That's just me. And so I just bring that into the filmmaking. I think that comes from just you know really loving Amer um, European and Japanese cinema um, and German cinema, where it's like they're not telling you anything. They're just like, <laughs> yo, this is it. Like, whatever you think. Um, 
And so I like that. And and you know we we don't we don't see that hardly enough in American independent cinema. Period. Let alone you know black independent cinema. And so. So you yeah. were the one dragging your dates to see Fastbinder films, and that yeah. was a real thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. We there was no second date. In this one, I imagine. <laughs> This is I imagine a romance. Okay. That's my litmus test. If you can go with me to see Ali for It's the Soul and sit through it and have a real conversation with me afterward, there might be something between us. <laughs> wow. It's harsh. It's tough. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of what, what, what I'm trying to do. So, uh, so tell us what it was like, you know, getting this film made and then getting it out there because you're, you know, in the unusual position of not just writing and directing the film, you're the, you are the distributor. You, right. You know, Right. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a difference between self-distribution and, and collaborative distribution. And so Affirm, which is the distribution collaborative that I founded in 2011, Middle of Nowhere is our fourth film. Um, you know, our goal – what was your question? Well, just what it – I'm sorry. <laughs> if you, no, I just I was curious about what it was like to, to, A, get the film made, like oh, get right. a finance made, but then getting it out into the world. Because I right. think it's very interesting the way that you – you know, you're you're booking the you're literally the one who's like getting these films into yes. the theaters. Yes, yes. So the distribution collaborative um, really gives me freedom in the production piece of it. I, I found now that this is my second film that I've made and distributed through a firm. Um, questions like, can you cast Emiazzi Coronaldi? I know the end game. Like, you can't tell me <laughs> you don't know how to market it because I know how to market it, and you can't tell me I can't book it because, well. Let that be my problem. I'm the one on the phone, right? And so it, it's really allowed me the freedom, and I'm, I'm seeing this now in hindsight as the distributor to take risks in the actual making of the film, hmm. which I don't know how long that's going to last. You know, I don't know um, if the next film I make will be distributed through a firm. Hmm. Um, you know, a firm can support a films of a certain amount, a, a certain yeah. budgetary range. You have to put a certain amount of P&A against a film, and we have small P&A budgets. So... Um, so yeah, you know, but but they but they are informing each other. This film was made through private equity. Uh, we made it for two hundred thousand um, dollars. Mm. We shot it in nineteen days, um, and um, you know that those budgets uh, I feel really comfortable in. Like I'm in a yin yang now, where I want to work with more money, but yet I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And the more money you take, you know, the more people become involved, and the more strings are attached. And so it's really the space of trying to retain some independence without being independently wealthy is a challenge. Yeah. Um, I either need to win the lottery or <laughs> learn to cooperate and play with others. Um, but, but yeah, so, so yeah, I don't know how long that'll last, but I'm enjoying the fact that we did have that experience in the middle of nowhere yeah. where we made the film we wanted to make. We put it out the way we wanted it to put out and it's, it's truly an independent endeavor. And this film uh, played at a number of theaters in Manhattan, but it's opening, reopening, uh, or yeah. moving to the IFC Center this yeah, Friday. Yeah, we pushed so. out of some theaters uh, because of Sandy. We were gone out of New York for two weeks, but we're back on Friday, this Friday, at IFC Center. So Okay. Yeah. So let's take some questions. Raise your hand. I'll repeat um, so everybody can hear right over here. Yeah, so in terms of the look of the film, I mentioned the cinematographer, Bradford Young, who you've worked with before, right? Yes, yes. Um, so how did you decide to give it this look, the widescreen look? Oh, you know, just 
That was always, that was never even a question. It was just always something. I mean, it, it's just a more cinematic quality to me. I mean, all looks are every, everyone has to make that decision as to, in terms of what they wanted to do, but we knew we wanted that. We knew we wanted to work with, with the close up. And, um, and, you know, if you're going to be close up, be close up, be big. Yeah. If you're going to be a close up, if you're going to say you're doing a close up, really do it. <laughs> um, I know at some points, uh, I would say to Emmy Yatsi, okay, we're going to be close. And he's like, she's like, okay, okay. And then Bradford would just be like, <laughs> right, right on it. He's, yeah. She was like, this close? Really? He's like, yes, let's just proceed. Action. Wow. And, um, and you know, it, 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 these are just conversations about what you want the frame to look like and what you want the film to feel like. And, you know, it was really important for me to find a cinematographer who was a collaborator in the sense that I don't like to speak in terms of lenses and technical aspects of the camera. I speak in more emotional terms. So mm. I rarely say put a 50 on it and turn it this way i'll be like i wanted to f- i'm a girl so i'll be like i wanted to f-. and i'm not Catherine bigelow who's badass by the way <laughs> I, I wanted to feel like this or remember that one car Wai film we're like i and he can translate that and you know put put it into the image so how, how much time do you have on the set to sort of rehearse and, and sort of mess around like that because no we days, don't we, yeah. that was all in the pre-production yeah you know many days of sitting around with bradford having green tea talking about movies <laughs> and watching things and deciding what we wanted the, the film to feel like i think it yeah. really came out of our friendship yeah. you know spending time together knowing what we like uh, in terms of film references and just uh deciding that we wanted to do some different things with the film we wanted to see what black people look like in dark rooms Hmm. Um, because we don't see a whole lot of films black you know I walk in my house sometimes the lights aren't on and it's not brightly lit everywhere I go (laughs) right and so you know or we were talking about this beach scene and just how chat at dusk and you know the light is only coming from the moon but so the moon's on one on this side not this side so on the beach scene you know, we're like, well, we're going to risk it. Like, sometimes Edwina's just going to be teeth and eyes. And we're like, yeah, but when she turns, it's going to be like this really pretty light. It's like, let's try it. Let's experiment. Let's just try it. On some screens, I watch and I was like, oh, that's cool. It works. On other screens, I'm like, girl, she's too dark. You need to turn that up a little bit. But these are the things you play with, you experiment with as, as filmmakers. And I think in terms of having a black cinematographer, yeah. it was really fun to be able to have those candid conversations and play around with it. He's really a genius. Right then. Hi. Thank you. I haven't heard that all day. Thank you. So yeah, there's a lot of nonverbal stuff. He, he was wondering about the script. Like, it, it seems it's a very spare film in terms of the dialogue and the way it's written. So if you could talk about that and also about what the directing, you know, what the directing is actually like for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, thank you for the observation and the kind words. Um, uh, yeah. No, the script was was small. There's actually a whole character and storyline that's not in the film. Um, that's <laughs> just in the editing room. We just lifted it out. Just decided that it didn't work. Um, and so, yeah, if I consider that that whole part was out, the script was maybe 70 pages. Mm. Um, and, uh, and yeah, because there, you know, a lot of the communication is coming nonverbal. It's a lot of moments where you're seeing people processing and thinking, which is not, uh, usual for American independent cinema. Um, 
you know, we're told that you have to kind of fill the air, fill the time, and, you know, make sure there's something happening on every page. Um, I think there's stuff on happening, stuff happening on every page. They're just not talking about it. Um, and so that's just a different approach to it. Um, but we shot all those scenes as if there were dialogue and made sure that all those scenes had a beginning, middle, and end and, um, and that they were, you know, keeping the narrative thrust going. Um, as a director, my only secret beyond surrounding myself with people that I really like, which is a huge, huge secret. So on the first film I will follow, I was so broke. I was making film for $50,000. I had to work with anybody who was willing to work with me. Like, Anybody. Will you do that for me for $2? Yes? Great. I don't care if I don't like you. You don't like me. You voted for Bush. I don't care. <laughs> you come work. Let's do it. And just, you know, it just doesn't work out. And so working on work for hire and commercials and documentaries, I started to really understand why you have these filmmakers who work with the same troupe of craftsmen again and again. It makes a difference. And so on this film... You know, really assembled people that I liked, that I'd worked with before, that I had admired, that I just vibed with. And I can see a difference in the material. And I know there was a difference in the experience. So that's the first thing, is just making sure that I'm comfortable with everyone and then making everyone comfortable with me. And the way you do that is just to deconstruct all the facades and all of the things of what a director should do and what a director should say. And as a director, be willing to say, sometimes I don't know the answer. Or what do you think? Or just listen to what someone has to say. And I think for me, um, you know, that's always my goal is to make everyone comfortable with the material and with me. And be friends, you know? Well, somebody asked me, what's your secret to filmmaking? And I was like, I'm literally friends with everyone on the set as much as possible, mm. you know? And that helps. You like to help your friends. You like to do your best work for them. So that's my secret. Uh, okay. Over there? No? Okay. Here. Hi. This, Go ahead. This, this uh, woman in the yeah. in the red, right, right in the front, who's turning around right now. Now you're looking ahead. You. Oh, okay. Go yes, ahead. Hi. Sorry. Yeah. She wants to see your next film already. So do you have anything waiting in the wings? Thank you. I'm shooting a documentary right now for ESPN Films. They have a cool series called Thirty for Thirty, where they choose thirty filmmakers and they let them make stuff about sports. So I'm making a documentary right now about Venus Williams, and. Uh, Oh, somebody oh, man, we got Venus. an audience. You yeah, have, I got you... one viewer. One viewer, ESPN. Uh, oh. <laughs> um, and uh, Venus Williams and her, specifically her fight for fair pay at Wimbledon. You know, so at Wimbledon up until 2007, men and women made different amounts if they were champions. And she said, no, I'm not having that. I'm going to fix that right now. So she went on a three-year campaign, got Tony Blair involved, the United Nations. It was a really big deal in the UK, but we don't know the story here, so I'm going to try to bring that to life. Could you yeah. talk a bit about the, your documentary work, your, your film about hip-hop in the, uh, the, ni- the, the 90s scene that I think Bradford... Did he no, 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 I didn't, didn't know him then. I didn't know oh, him then. Oh, so could, but could you talk about how your documentary work feeds into your... You're well-researched. It's pretty good. Well. <laughs> um, yes, I made a, the first film I ever made was a documentary about my friends and the West Coast hip-hop scene. Uh, it was an alternative scene. So during the, during the 90s, I'm from Compton, South Central... All of you all were hearing about Boys in the Hood and riots and all these things. There was like nerd kids that were doing a whole different kind of hip hop in a health food store called The Good Life. It was a huge, huge, huge thing out there. But like nerds, like (laughs) not 
sagging pants, not banging, like not doing anything of those cool things that you think of when you think of Compton. And, um, and, uh, and yeah, so this documentary is about that whole cadre of artists and kids who were making things around that time. And it was not co-opted by the record companies. It was not picked up by the MTV world. It was avoided. It was positive. And this, you know, how the industry kind of focused on the negative aspects that were coming out of the city at that time very purposely. So the documentary chronicles that movement. And uh, so that led to BET asking me to make a documentary. They wanted to do something about women in hip-hop. And I said, well, give me some money and I'll make something. And they gave me a little bit of money and I made a film called My Mic Sounds Nice that chronicles um, women in hip-hop. And um, I don't know, it's, it's good. I like it. I like that film. So, and um, yeah. and then Black Girls Rock. I shot on Black Girls Rock. I do some things with BET and MTV and VH1 uh, for hire. I was just really wondering. You have you seem to have a very observational style in your narrative filmmaking. So I'm just wondering if that your experience in documentaries how, sort of. I love nerf- docs. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's all storytelling. So yeah. You know, it's just telling stories with different tools. But I really love docs, and it's always great as a filmmaker. I think uh, I know so many filmmakers that. They have like so many years in between projects because they're trying to get that narrative project up and running. It's like they're waiting like five years to get the next narrative project up and running. It's like, go oh, pop off a doc. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, do a doc. Keep, keep shooting. There's so many stories to tell. Why, why wait for the one script that you love so much and you're making it too precious? You need to just keep shooting. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> over here. Yeah. So the question is about why you started your own distribution company, and then also you're curious about how you see the whole scene of black film evolving, because there was this, like, a lot of activity um, after Spike Lee and then the time of Boys in the Hood that you talked about. It seemed like there was a big, a very active period of black film, right? Is it? And then yeah. now there seems to be less. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it doesn't seem to be less. There are less. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I grew up, Watching the films of Spike Lee and the Hudlin Brothers and, you know, Maddie Rich and Singleton and all of those films and thinking this is how it's always going to be. Mm. They're badass and I, I love films and this is great. And, um, you know, kind of got to a point where I could make films and the, 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 there wasn't much industry around it. I won't say that the films are, aren't being made because they are. And I believe they always have been. I think they're more more being made now, but there's always been a consistent stream of black filmmakers who are doing their own thing. Um, but, uh, but there's no industry around it. There's no infrastructure. There's no architecture around it um, from a commercial perspective in terms of distribution and exhibition. And I just think as an entrepreneur on the marketing PR side, um, I'm just into business and couldn't reconcile making a film and not knowing how it reached theaters making a small film about black women for a certain amount of money and knowing that none of the pipelines to people wanted to take that film. So I had to make a pipeline to people. 
And basically it was very from a self-preservation point of view as I started. And then I thought, well, why would I all I build all of this for just my one film, which is the problem I have with self-distribution. So you have these filmmakers that are self-distributing their films and they're killing themselves to distribute it. And a lot of them are doing successfully. And then they're like, just walk away from it and go make another film um, or not. But it's, it takes so much to distribute a film. Our idea was let's keep it up and running and allow other filmmakers to run through it. Um, the question about do I want to do that or make films? Wish I could just make films all day. All the time, every month of the year. But I can't. My reality is there is no place for my films, so I have to make a place for myself and ensure that they have a life. And as long as I have to do that, I will. So, you know, so, okay, yes. So I couldn't help, um, you know, when thinking about you and your career, thinking about um, flashing back, thinking about Oscar Michaud, who made films, uh, this, you know, in the 30s and 40s, he was doing films for um, what were called the race movie audience at that time. And he was um, carrying around prints and getting them out there. And I, um, you're doing something different, but I'm wondering how you think about this question about, like, are you tr- trying to reach a black audience and then reach a, a broader audience? Because I don't, I don't know if you ever feel pigeonholed mm-hmm. in a way. You know, there's, like, pros and cons, I would think, in tr- trying to think think that way right right yeah. right i would say my i mean our campaigns the campaigns i design are very hybrid in nature um that we're speaking because that's kind of what i did and what my specialty was i work very hard to reach mainstream indie film lovers and non-black white people okay but you're like mainstream indie what is that talking about <laughs> white audiences who like independent film and and equally hard at reaching black audiences. And the issue is that on most of the films that you see, there's no equally hard to reach black audiences. No one's working hard to reach a black audiences right. unless, unless you have, you know, a $12 million Screen Gems film or a Tyler Perry film. And then mm-hmm. they don't even work hard. They do like the same five things and you're going to know what's there and go see it, right? But there's not like an intentional marketing to the black community to see a certain kind of film, you know, even if you look at a campaign like Precious, which I've looked at it from the inside out, hmm. um, or a campaign like The Help, which I worked on, it's always part of the philosophy is, oh, the black audience will kind of get it through osmosis, which we do because we're used to that. But there's not an intentional inviting to see this film. This film is for you. And so with the campaigns that we do, there is a very intentional, focused, balanced African-American outreach and independent film outreach. Um, because we feel it's for both. The challenge is theaters that feel the same, uh, that believe that black people will come to see a film like this, which I've been told by theaters in this city that they won't. And um, and to get independent independent audiences and to see a black film, uh, thinking that a black film is not for them. Japanese film will be for them, German film, African film, but... African American film. So what? That's, what that's is for the black people? Yeah. So what's so the that's a like? What's the misunderstanding there? The problem because we were I talking beforehand about like sp- the specific theaters in in Manhattan that you know sort of said no, that's not for they us. So there was an audience. They felt that the film was too cerebral for the black audience and too black for the cerebral audience. Straight up, that, that's yeah. what it is. It's indie, too indie for black people who are fed a steady diet of a certain kind of film. And there's no stars in it, and the black audience won't come because we're told that they respond to a certain thing, marketing-wise. 
and independent audiences don't come to black films of this size to get a white and it's true to get a white independent film going audience to see a film with all black people like they didn't go to see pariah they didn't go to see medicine for melancholy Hmm. We had we had a, a decent turnout for Middle of Nowhere, but it wasn't overwhelming. Most of our, we were opening, we were number one the weekend we opened in specialty box office. It was mostly generated by black audience. Um, but you have to be a lot. You have to be precious. You know what I mean? You have to be the help. Yeah. You have to be, and I don't want to go into what those are, but you have right. to. Yeah, yeah. You have okay. to. <laughs> some people in here know what those are. You have to really be very specific in what um, you're offering. It's a certain kind of black cinematic image. Right. And, um, and most of the time it's not positive. Right down here. So do you think that's true? Do you think that the black audience is just seen as like one, you know, generic, yeah, un- yeah. right. Yeah, um, and hi, Harry. You're Harry Allen, right? Yeah, I just knew from the voice. I have many public enemy CDs, so I knew the voice right off. A radio voice there, yeah. Pleasure to have you here. <laughs> um, the, um, no, you're a monolith until you show variants, and we've never shown variants as a black film-going community. So... There's not enough films. There haven't been enough films in the last 20 years to demonstrate variants. Variants of film-going habit, variants of audience within the blacks, right? Until you realize that all those categories are ours anyway, so right. <laughs> but um, but yes, you're right, and you very true. Yes, <laughs> very true. So okay, back here. Okay, um, yeah. her question. Well, question about why a film like Beast of the Southern Wild seemed to play well with white audiences. Is that what you're that's what you're asking, right? Um, it didn't seem to play well with white audiences. It did play well with white audiences. It wasn't marketed to the black community and it wasn't marketed as a black film at all. It was stripped of race, it was stripped of culture, it was marketed as an independent jewel, which it is. Um, many people see it as that, and it um was really divorced from its blackness as a part of its marketing tenets. Uh you never hear them talking about anything to do with race as it pertains to the film and the marketing materials when the director speaks anything about it. Um, and so that was purposeful and it worked. Um, I think there's also conversation that should be had around where the material emanates. And something that I really want to invite people to think about is the devaluing of films about black women and girls made by black women and girls. Um, And the kind of uplifting of films about 
black women and girls made by people who aren't black women and girls. Mm. Um, and w- the the gaze and the perspective and what you're getting and what's seen as valuable and what's seen as more valuable or less. Um, I'm just going to keep it open, throw it out there for you to think about. Um, but ultimately, you know, in that film, that's a film about a young black child and it's a valid interpretation, but it is an interpretation out of reflection. And I think those are two different kinds of films. And I think that we place different values on different gazes. And uh, that film is doing extremely well. I, was, I took our film to the Stockholm Film Festival and the Amsterdam Film Week, which is the two film festivals and the only ways that we were able to get this film shown outside the country because no one else will take it as a full run. And, but I saw Beast playing full runs all through all through with the little black girl on the poster, but she doesn't look black on the poster because she's running through the sprinklers from the back, right? Mm. And so it was, you know, some of these key marketing decisions that were made for that film um, that have helped it be successful. Plus, it's a, you know, it's a film that people are stunned by and people are, seem to be very moved by, and so that, that certainly helps. Um, but we were at Sundance together, so that's kind of our Sundance peer, our peer group. And uh, it's interesting to see all the films that come out of Sundance and uh, that film do so, so well, and I'm happy for them. Uh, but it, it, it is, you know, it's a little bittersweet to know that it's, it's um, a lot of what I think makes it special for some black people has, has been stripped away from the marketing. And to know that that's what's really getting white folk in, that it doesn't seem too black. You understand what I'm saying? Our film is very black. There's three black people on the poster. I'm sorry. It's black people in this movie. Like, I'm going to show you that they're in it. And it's, it's, it's about something to do with prison, and it's about American life, and it deals with a real issue, and it's not fantasy, and it's not magical realism, and it's none of that. And, um, and it's been tough to get, to get people who don't look like the people on the poster in the film. It also seems like a film, your film seems like something that's drawn from such personal experience. Like, we didn't talk, or observation, we didn't talk about the, the family life, the way the, the relationships are, are so interesting. Like, the, the, the mother and the sister are fascinating characters, and the dynamic feels like, um, you know, comes from something very personal. Not necessarily, like, yeah. your autobiography, but... Right. But, no, because it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, it comes from my imagination and my research. Yeah. And I think, I think as I'm, I'm appreciative that that wasn't your first question because most of the time when I sit down, they ask me, so, right. your husband in prison, how is he? Like, Are you serious? It's something along those lines. <laughs> it's something along the lines of this is personal, right? This has to be personal. And I've talked with a lot of women filmmakers, white, Asian, all kinds, LGBT women, um, we're often, it's all, our films are often equated with personal experience. Like we actually went through it, not wrote it and it came from our imagination research like you know um like anyone else uh our our white male counterparts (laughs) are are not often asked about the personal experiences that go into their films and so um so no it wasn't personal i mean Mm. it was uh it became personal because it was coming out of my mind my imagination but um none of it really speaks directly to my experience I wish I had. I was juggling two men. I really do. <laughs> um, but alas, not enough brothers want to go see Ali Fearless the Soul, and thus I'm alone. <laughs> there's a few here tonight who probably would. Hey, I think. Yeah. This brother has already declared his love. Unfortunately, there's a beautiful sister sitting next to him. What do I do with that? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. We- 
Moving right along. Over here. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about this is a black film or black audiences, but um, also this is a film about women, um, which is more actually more than half the population. So, well, a little bit more, I think. But um, I think it's just because I, I, it's an automatic part of my marketing tenant. I mean, I'm marketing to white women through our independent campaign, and I'm marketing to black women through our black campaign. Um, so yes, we're marketing to, to women. I, ne I never in any of my campaigns segmented women's campaigns out. We just make sure that we are, it's inclusive in our American independent campaign, American independent cinema campaign. It's a very, very heavy focus on women. It's a women's story. Um, so it's only in my description of the campaign, but it definitely was a part of it. And it definitely, um, it didn't even come up in, in the interview with Miss Gross. I don't know why, it just, it's a given to me that if you're marketing campaign to a certain segment of people as a marketer, you're hitting men and women within that, within that quadrant. Okay, so, yes. Yes, no, we did. We worked with a number of women's groups. It was a part of our campaign. I just, I'm not saying it. I, I didn't, I'm sorry I didn't explain that. We did. But yes, it wasn't a part of her interview. It wasn't part of her question. It wasn't part of his question. But yes, women's groups were a part of it um, in every market. And I really work on my campaigns by region, right? So in each region, we had dual campaigns that were happening. Main, white folks who love independent film and black people in general. The whole monolith. The blacks. Right, And we broke down how to reach them, how do you reach black people, because we're not a monolith, and we broke down how to reach American independent film lovers, and within that, heavy focus on women's groups. Most of the women's groups that we reached out to were in the social justice area, because of the subject, subject matter, uh, uh, organizations that were very focused on advocacy for women who are loved ones of the incarcerated, and then also of a lot of women filmmaker actor, artist, theater groups, folks that just have natural interest in American independent cinema. So we did. I promise. We really did. <laughs> and what, what's changed now, like just in the past week or so, now we're like in the award season and you're, you're you know, off to a good start yeah. with the um, Gotham's and the Spirit Awards. So I don't know. How does that change things for you? It's really, really... Uh, yeah. it's, it's... Having been a publicist and worked on those campaigns, yeah. I know what it takes to win them. Mm -hmm. It takes money, and I don't have it. Yeah. So I'm really kind of ha halfway participating because it's just it's an impossibility. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's a it's a beautiful award season, and we're on some very uh, cool prediction lists from some really great journalists who are championing our film. Yeah. But those aren't voters. Yeah. And the way that you reach voters, you have to have money to reach them. Yeah. I no, mean, we you have were, to have yeah. ads. You yeah. have to have screeners. You have to have screenings. You have to. There's a certain rhythm to the campaign. It involves a budget that our film affirm our distribution company don't have. Well, you're so. genuinely independent because, because uh, you know, when I heard you were nominated for the Gotham Awards, I figured, oh, they're flying you in. Um, <laughs> this, the, you know, the other films. Who's they? Yeah, right. The distribution company. Oh, but, Yeah, but you nurse. are the distribution Where company. So, like, yeah. you've, you, you actually have to get yourself to yes. New York to go to the Gotham yes, David Awards. David called and he said, oh, when you're out for the Gothams, can right. you swing by? I was like, don't know if I'm going to the Gothams. If we can scratch together some A cash, plane ticket. we'll yeah. come on out. Yeah. So all of the, this campaigning that goes on is, yeah, is very it's, expensive. It's costly. So, in the mean, you know, we're just enjoying the things that, uh, that do come. We're enjoying the buzz. Uh, we're booking as many jobs. I told all the actors, book jobs right now while you got buzz. Um, <laughs> and uh, just enjoying it, but understanding as a publicist and marketer who've been, who's been through it and has controlled the budgets of the award shows, knowing that it really takes quite a bit. Yeah. So, um, but things like the Gotham, Gotham's and Spirits that look specifically at independent cinema, we've been, it's been nice to be recognized. Great. Okay. We'll do one, uh, just two more questions. So run here then. So yeah, how do you see this distribution effort growing? If you don't want to be, you don't want to be too big in a in a way, so you're like beholden to the, the big studios, but you still want to reach people, and you you know you might be reaching a bigger audience with your next film. Yeah, yeah. My goal of the firm is not to be bigger; it's to be longer. Um, I want it to be an institution that's here in twenty years. Hmm. I don't necessarily need it to be bigger. I just need it to be consistent and around longer. Um, I look at what Warrington's done with BFF, with the Black Filmmakers Foundation. I mean, it's been around for a long time as a resource for us. And, you know, sure there were opportunities to do more, be bigger, be flashier, but that kind of stuff, um, it becomes difficult to sustain. And what our challenges in black independent cinema, black cinema in general, sustainability. What filmmakers were you talking about 20 years ago that you're still talking about? You know, we, we just don't, we don't have the Nichols and the Allens and the Scorseses and the Coppolas, not in talent. Yes, we have them in talent, in brand awareness and audience and consistent legacy going to see these films. The films are not coming fast enough, often enough at all, and there's no mechanism, no architecture of support and audience cultivation around them. And so our goal is simply to, to be here and mm-hmm. to make sure that we create a through line, a pop pipeline that is longer, not necessarily bigger. And through that, we will reach more audiences. It'll be little, but it'll be little for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that's my thought about it. Um, and and we've avoid trying to avoid the pitfalls of uh, of being of growing bigger. And we're trying to grow this way. And do you do the acquisition? Because you're not just distributing your own films; you're doing other films. Yeah, like this is our fourth City. film. Yeah. Um, two are, were mine, two were other filmmakers, and we just acquired another that we'll be announcing in a couple of weeks, our fourth, fi- our fifth, fifth film. And, um, yeah, we're really excited about it. Next year we're adding a, 
uh, ancillary elements. So being able to support filmmakers beyond theatrical with DVD, with, with VOD, and, uh, and just ways to kind of sustain for a longer amount of time. Great. Okay. There was one more in the middle, and then we're done. Hi. Okay. No, thank you for the question. Good question. Well, she's saying she loves how you're not telling the audience what to feel, but what do you hope that an audience will take away? No, what do you hope that they'll take away from the film experience? Yeah, yeah. You know, because um, you know, I, I always say that I hope you just take away something. I mean, my worst fear is that you walk out and by the time you get to the car and it's raining and it's freezing and you put on the radio and by the time you get home you've forgotten about the film. My goal is for the film to kind of stick to your ribs and tomorrow when you're eating lunch at work, you remember something or there's an image or a feeling or how you felt about it or a piece of music or a frame or something someone said that kind of gets into your DNA. I really hope that. But also uh, beyond that, um, just the idea that nothing is a cliche. We aren't cliches. There's human beings under every cliche and you think you know what it is to be you know, a black woman a baby mama, live in Compton, have a man in prison, love someone, lose someone. You think you knew what that black mother was going to be when she walked on. You knew exactly what, who she was going to be, mm-hmm. but she wasn't that. You know, you thought you knew what the relationship was going to be. You thought you knew what the end was going to be, but none of us really know. We don't know each other. And so um, it's about just turning over those characters and, and staying open. So that's the goal. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. There's some good articles. That, yeah, there's some good articles that we have links to on our website. There's been some good press, some good interviews, some great reviews. This so. lady likes a Terry Grosser interview, but not that I didn't mention the women's organizations. Uh, everything else, though, she liked. Thank okay. you for coming. Thanks, really everybody. See you all. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening. The Pinewood Dialogues at Museum of the Moving Image are made possible by generous support from the Pannonia Foundation. To learn more about the museum, visit www.movingimage.us.